Welcome to another issue of Hollowed Waters Podcast Journal. I'm Matt Sapinski, the publisher and editor of Hollowed Waters Podcast and the magazine. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we just concluded uh, our uh, Brown Trout Hunter series. And uh, we are starting a new year. Hope everyone is being healthy and safe. And uh, as we endure another year of COVID, so please get vaccinated and be cautious and and be um, responsible to everyone else around you. And uh, we we hope all the blessings to everyone out there. And uh, thank you so much for um, coming to Hollywood Waters podcast and the journal. Um, we just have our new issue out. Um, this winter, um, the space psyche, which our guest today, we are so honored to have, um, was a part of it. And um, the new series is going to be uh, the migratory space space series. And uh, I think you're going to see some pretty cool people coming to the podcast uh, to speak about our journey with our migratory salmon, steelhead, coaster brook trout, lake run, sea run, brown trout, all kinds of cool stuff. People from all over the world that have the same passion that are part of the journal and uh, part of the podcast that we have been so blessed to have join us. Um, so thank you very much uh, for listening and for subscribing. And uh, you can go to hollowedwaters.com and hear more of what we're doing. So without further ado, I want to introduce a, um, a, a, a a dude that's a Buddha of Atlantic salmon. And uh, this issue, um, this particular edition is the passion for Atlantic salmon, spay evolution and modern salmon flies. And uh, I am so very honored to have uh, the person today uh, be part of this. Um, this guy wrote amazing books about our Salmo Salar. He's fished all over the place. Um, he, he, I like to call these people Buddhas because I think in another life, um, Topher Brown, uh, who we have today, was probably an Atlantic salmon, the way he writes about them. And uh, these fish sort of bless us um, or curse us with this passion that mesmerizes. And um, so without further ado, Topher, how the hell are you, brother? I'm great, Matt, and uh, thanks for having me on board. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Topher, um, he is uh, from the great state of Maine, which I think is probably the last frontier uh, that I have not fished in, and I am so psyched to come and harass Topher someday um, to fish up there. I have friends that live up there in the great town of Eustis. I don't know, Topher, you probably know where Eustis is. Uh, yeah, we, we we have a nickname for it. We call it useless. Useless and Eustace. And uh, Gene Kelly, if you're listening, uh, he's from Boston. And uh, Gene has this beautiful place up in Eustace on a lake that has these little fish in it with speckles and, and all kinds of X marks on them. And he's got to figure out how to catch them. So, Topher, you and I have to go and teach Gene how to catch these fish and show him what he's got in his little private lake up there. But they're kind of silvery fish with all kinds of paramecium marks. And I think uh, you and I probably know uh, a little bit about those guys. Um, but anyways, Topher, um, Topher Brown, folks, is um, the author of Atlantic Salmon Magic. And um, it's uh, from Wild River Press from 2011. It is, it is the Bible on Atlantic Salmon. Um, when I first saw it and looked at it, uh, I was mesmerized um, how much knowledge is in that book, how much time Topher spent thinking about 
the whole thing. We're going to talk about that. He's also the author of 100 Best Little Flies for Atlantic Salmon. Um, he co-produced Spay Casting DVDs, Spay to Z, you guys have seen before, and I've looked at many times for scientific anglers with Wei Yin and Greg Pearson. Um, Topher is guided all over the place for Atlantic salmon, guided out in Montana for trout uh, for our friend out there. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And uh, he fishes a lot of the rivers in the Canadian Maritimes. He's fished Norway, he's fished all over the place. Uh, this is going to be probably uh, a, a long part, part one and part two series, because there's so much uh, depth to Topher that it's going to be hard to cover um, so much that he has going on. But um, Topher, I, when I talked to you the first time, you're, you're a breath of fresh air, man. It was like so, so, ref so interesting to talk to somebody that sees through all the different issues that are going on with Atlantic salmon today. Um, you know, give me your whole perspective right now on, on our challenges. Uh, how does ASF and NASCO and the Atlantic salmon uh, trust come in? You mentioned uh you know, other groups that do all the scientific research. Where do you see all this happening? And, and if you had to look in a, in a crystal ball right now, what's your, what's, what's your thought process on this whole thing? That's a big question. Um, I, think, um, I think the rivers at the southern end of the range for Atlantic salmon, so in Canada, that would be essentially Maine and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and in Europe, it would be Spain, it would be France, it would be Southern England. I think all of the rivers at the Southern end of the current range for Atlantic salmon are uh, in deep trouble. And they've always been relatively marginal habitat and with increasing water temperatures and increasing air temperatures, increased uh, logging and human activity, um, these rivers are in great peril. And I don't uh, have a uh, doom and gloom approach to Atlantic salmon. I actually think that Atlantic salmon will probably outlive humans. And they've been around as long or longer than humans in various forms, the fish. And I think they will shift their habitat to, uh, to a place where the climate is friendly to their needs. And so that means the northern edge of the habitat, which in, uh, in North America would be Ungava Bay in Quebec. It would be um, mid-coast to uh, three-quarters of the way up the coast in Labrador. It would be a couple of rivers in Greenland, and it would be uh, the very tip top of Norway. And if you continue beyond the Kola Peninsula, there's even habitat in uh, central Russia for Atlantic salmon. So I think the fish will move there as they start to lose habitat at the southern end of the range. And the difficulty becomes um, if they're unable to spread their habitat to the north and they keep losing habitat in the south, then they will become compressed in a very, very narrow band. And so as long as we can gain habitat at the northern end of the range at more or less the same rate that we're losing it at the southern end of the range, right. then the overall habitat for the salmon is probably going to be in pretty good shape. And we're starting to see Atlantic salmon turning up in Baffin Island. 
And Baffin Island has typically had no Atlantic salmon. The, uh, the Inuit up there are starting to catch them in their nets. There was a famous case a few years ago where an Inuit set, sent, caught a fish that he had never seen before, and he sent it to DFO, Division of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and they identified it as an Atlantic salmon. Yeah. So they are extending their, their northern habitat as we speak. And that's, that's a hopeful message. With regards to uh, the conservation organizations, I think they're doing some valuable research. They're able to, for example, Atlantic Salmon Federation did some very valuable research on smolt that were being lost within a few kilometers of the mouth of the Miramichi. And that's important research because you can take that data to Division of Fisheries and Oceans and say it is very likely that they're being consumed by striped bass. And so perhaps we can increase the quota on striped bass. And so I think that's really useful information. By and large, um, I think a lot of the NGOs, the non-government organizations are, um, I don't think they have much uh, influence in the halls of government. And that is their failing. In other words, um, If you or I express outrage at how things are being conducted in the world, you know, nobody's really going to listen to us until we um, have some kind of influence um, either in Ottawa or Washington, or we have paid lobbyists who can work the system, then our sense of outrage is not going to really make any difference at all. And I think that's the failing of a lot of the NGOs. And in Canada, they place limits on the, uh, the lobbying and capabilities of NGOs, and, but less so in this country. And so I would like to see um, people that recognize this in salmon conservation and realize, hey, you know, we can we can throw out all the best science and all the best information, but it's really not going to do anything unless we can change policy. Right. And so we need to get to the lawmakers. We need to get to the decision makers and have a say at the table on policy decisions. And I think that's where a lot of these uh, um, NGOs uh, fall short. And the, um, the scientific community, um, I think the best one is ICES, International Council for the Exploration of the Seas. And they are the, they are the, they do great work. They are the, they are the, uh, the, the body of record that determines what the actual uh, run sizes are for, say, North America, completely altogether. So, that kind of information is, you know, just to give you an idea, IC's estimate of returns for the year 2020, uh, small salmon would be a grill that they, they estimate between all rivers in North America. So that's basically mostly Canada, right. 456,000 grills. Yeah. And for two seawinter, three seawinter, four seawinter fish, or large salmon, 155,600. Wow. So yeah. that, that's all that's left yeah. in wild fish. And that is, you know, there are uh, aquaculture installations that have 2 million fish. Yeah. 
That's so, frightening. I mean, if you look at if you look at historical records, you know, we're looking 75, 80%, 90% down in some situations. Uh, you know, the, and it's interesting when you're talking about the mirror machine and you know, all the stuff that they're doing there, this is so much impacted uh, at, at this point by climate change in such a major way um, with, with um, the striped bass and the, and the, and the uh, black bass that's coming into systems. Um, they did a rote known kill recently on the lower Miramichi. Um, and, you know, we're resorting to measures now to combat uh, the prey-predator imbalances that are happening. And yeah. it's kind of interesting, we're, we're suffering the same... Um, sort of uh, dismal uh, looking into the crystal ball here in the Great Lakes because we're having decreased steelhead returns based on, you know, exotic invaders, quagga mussels, and zebra mussels. But a big problem that we have here in Michigan and a problem that I see in Lake Ontario where you fish, which we're going to talk about, is that there's a, the smolts are being gobbled up by, by walleye, by bass. Um, as the pelagic base shrinks, i.e. alewives, bloater chubs, etc., you're, you're getting these big predators out there that are just taking every little silvery eight inch fish that comes in the system and gobbles the crap out of them. And, you know, my friends fish the salmon river, use fish the salmon, which we'll talk about. They're just complaining about the same problem we have. Where have all, all the fish gone? Which leads me into the next question, which you described the first one so brilliantly. Um, there's a trailer out there lost at sea that was put out uh, several years ago. Uh, by the Brits in UK and, and you know how all these smolts you know we're producing smolts in these rivers they're they're actually emigrating out and they're being lost at sea where the hell are they going uh, you know are we where are we having predators come into into uh, pred predation zones where they normally weren't uh, are these fish you know is, is it the is it the temperature changes that are happening with the melting of the glaciers um, there's so many variables going on in this whole thing. Um, what, what, what's your perspective on that whole thing? And, 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 uh, where, where, where do you see it going from there? I think, um, the most vulnerable stage for a, uh, an outgoing Atlantic salmon. So a smolt is the first few weeks once they hit salt water. And, if a salmon can get to say 15 pounds in the ocean, there are not really too many things that it worries about. It can outrun most things, but if it's a five inch smolt and there are um, a lot of predators that can certainly eat a five inch fish. And so that seems to be where we are losing the fish is at that very susceptible stage when they're relatively small and but that's the predator component of it which i think is only one component of it the other component is they need a certain prey size when they swim to the ocean as a five or six inch fish that is small enough for them to wrap their lips around and as we are losing small copepods and our plankton base is down. I, I think the, the primary investigation that I would do if I were a scientist would be to take a look at are those small meals available to outgoing smolt in ready numbers so that they can pack on enough weight to, to do the next stage of their migration. Yeah. And because we know that biomass up and down the food chain is is suffering in the North Atlantic and in all oceans, right. um, 
are the prey species available to the outgoing smolt in all the sizes that they need um, in order to put weight on. And there's a study being done right now where they're tagging um, fish off the west coast of Greenland. And they're tagging two sea winter fish that are migrating down the west coast of Greenland, primarily late summer, early fall. And they're eating mostly capelin. And it's about 86% capelin diet out there for those fish of that size. But a capelin's a pretty good sized fish. And so if you're an outgoing smolt, capelin's not on the menu. You need something significantly smaller. And if you're unable to locate that and or you swim into a jeer or an ocean current that is significantly colder than it, than it used to be due to ice melt from Greenland, the largest ice cube in North, the, the North Atlantic, how does that affect your survival? And if you're in your first winter as a pre-grills, so a fish that's managed to put on enough weight, um, and you're now spending your first winter in the North Atlantic, say in the South Labrador Sea, how does an ocean that is one or two degrees centigrade colder than it might normally be affect, how does it affect your ability to osmoregulate, to extract oxygen from the water. And the smaller you are, the less capable you are of osmoregulation in very cold water. And so we can take a look at ocean temperatures very closely, and they have been doing so since the 1930s, and relating that to runs of Atlantic salmon. And we know that when temperatures in the North Atlantic are average to above average, that we have better runs of Atlantic salmon. So one of the questions that I've always had is what happens if you have a tremendous amount of cold, very cold, fresh water infused into the Labrador Sea and the South Labrador Sea where these pre-grills are spending the winter and then they don't eat anything from maybe October through about March. And they're unable to find food at the very end of the winter season. And you get a cold storm coming through, you know, what happens to those fish? Are they, uh, is that when we're losing them? Is that yet another stage where they're in, in precarious, a precarious position? I think the odds are pretty good that, that, that they are. And, can we do a tremendous amount about uh, the temperature of the North Atlantic? Uh, not unless we all get on board with, um, you know, emissions and try and reduce the carbon content of the ocean. But I think there's a lot that we can do with prey species and making sure that um, the commercial entities, which there is commercial fishing for uh, Capelin and you know, we can we can do what we can do to make sure that the food base for the entire growth cycle of these fish is available to them such that they are able to find those meals when they need them and proceed on the next chapter of their 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 journey. And 
So to me, you know, once a, once a fish makes 15, 18 pounds, it's good to go. It knows how to survive. Right. It's that very early stage. First, when they come out of the ocean and they're predated upon. Secondly, when they head out into the ocean, they've got to find those meals quickly in order to continue their journey. Yeah, very. That's outstanding. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is all interesting. So this multi, this huge, uh, this huge conundrum that we're dealing with, um, with starting with lost at sea. Okay. Then we get into the next chapter. Um, my, my mentor, Bjorn Janssen, who wrote Ecology for Atlantic Salmon and Brown Trout and consulted with me on, on selectivity book and did a lot of uh, work for, with me on, uh, on the Nexus, my Nexus book. Um, he, um, you know, he says, well, we, we have the one battle to fight there. The next battle is if they make it and what percentage actually make it, then it's the next gauntlet that we have to figure out, which is coming back into the river system. And here we go with avian predation, warm water species. I just got done surviving one crazy conundrum. And then we come in watching uh, cormorants eating huge fish in the mouth of river systems on the nests and a lot of the UK rivers and everywhere. And um, so we have that chapter that is like a brutal uncontrollable uh, in a lot of respects. And then it's a controllable in a lot of respects because we could push, you know, wildlife agencies to lift bans on certain protected species that are way out in numbers. And if, you know, you know what's going on in certain things with, with cormorants and terns and otters and things that are just devouring, returning first, second year fish that are coming in grills. And then we have the beauty of climate change, which is floods, droughts, heat waves, timing is off, throwing the whole timing issue. So what you have in essence is, is a perfect storm of everything hitting these poor fish at one time. Yeah. And then what is, what is the, what is the last pieces of pie that are left? What is the last dividends to be had? You're looking at minimal, minimal numbers. And uh, so it's, it's a multi-fragmented attack. I think, I think we're trying, uh, Scotland just came out with a new plan. Um, Atlantic Salmon Trust just released on Friday that they have a new plan you know, how to, how to combat, you know, what's going on in Scotland and UK tried it with the Atlantic Salmon Trust back five years ago and nothing's been done. So we, we devise these beautiful plans, mm-hmm. beautiful critical action lists and this, 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 and then the whole system falls apart and it goes right back to exactly what you were saying in the beginning. The voice has to be a hell of a lot louder uh, to get heard. And right now it's just a few passionate salmon freaks like us, Atlantic salmon freaks that just, you know, we're, we're voicing these things. But, you know, in that, in that whole perspective, um, how, how, and then you have the other thing of, of salmon aquaculture that is thrown in that just, just pisses on the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And then, wow, if we figure out this other stuff, then we got big, big, big corporate world out there um, that we got to fight on top of that. What's your whole perspective on, on the whole salmon aquaculture thing? Uh, I think there's very little doubt that it, it affects runs of wild salmon within a certain range of any installation of aquaculture. And the best study that I've read uh, came out of Norway, and it, it clearly identified uh, mortality for 
outgoing smolt as nine to 11 sea lice on that smolt. So a sea lice is a small parasite that attaches itself to a salmon or a juvenile salmon, which we call a smolt, kind of like a remora would attach itself to the side of a shark and it sucks the blood of the outgoing smolt. And if you get nine, 10 or 11 of, of, of these sea lice, which come from the aquaculture pens on an outgoing smolt or a migrating smolt that m- migrates by a, an aquaculture installation, it's fatal. And they, they are catching uh, fish, small juvenile fish in certain areas that may have as many as 75 to 100 sea lice on them. So they're not going to make it. Or they're catching um, returning salmon with so many sea lice on them that the returning salmon is unlikely to survive um, due to the amount of um, parasites on it. So there's no doubt that uh, that aspect of aquaculture is, um, is killing salmon. And then the other aspect, um, which I think is uh, less looked at, is the aquaculture escapees. And they seem, the industry seems unable to contain salmon in its current form. And, you know, there was a massive escape of Atlantic salmon um, on the Pacific coast in um, Washington state, which led to the closure of the aquaculture industry in Washington state. And the, uh, they were catching uh, a, a lot of Atlantic salmon running up the rivers in Puget sound, um, which is, um, an ecological catastrophe. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Atlantic salmon, but not in the Pacific ocean. And, uh, I don't think they should be there. And, uh, in the same way, if I'm fishing an Atlantic salmon river in Eastern Canada, I don't really want to catch rainbow trout. Yeah, exactly. And they're just not native. So what happens if a portion of those fish start to start to breed in the river? Um, or, on the East coast, um, if they start to interbreed with wild fish and we know that's occurring. And in my opinion, the, uh, the answer is a complex genetic answer. And, but basically we do know that the information on where to migrate out in the ocean is passed on genetically from two mating salmon. And so if you have, if you think about something like, um, uh, say, the monarch butterfly, how does it know where to migrate to in Mexico to spend the winter? Uh, well, we're pretty sure that that information is passed on genetically. In other words, there's not a, uh, um, a grandfather monarch butterfly that says, come on, guys, I will show you how to find the wintering grounds. Um, that information is not transferred that way. It's transferred genetically. They know where to go in their DNA code. And it's likely that the same exact thing is happening with salmon. In other words, when they get out as a, as a smolt into the ocean, 
they have an overwhelming urge to migrate in a certain direction. And that direction is the place where food could be found for the last 10,000 years. And so where am I going with this? What I'm saying is that if you take an aquaculture fish and you interbreed it, if you breed it with a wild fish, then the juveniles are probably not going to, they're they're only going to get 50% of that code, that message as to where they need to go in order to survive is going to be scrambled um, or not there at all. So in order for the species to survive, it needs two wild parents. And when you start mixing those with hatchery fish, then um, we don't know what the, uh, the repercussions of those are. I think we can say safely that it won't be good. Right. And so between those two things, the, you know, the, the sea lice problem, which we know, we know emphatically is killing juvenile salmon as they migrate by the pens, and the fact of the genetic pollution from escaped fish. And another component of the escaped fish is the transmission of diseases right. from wild, from two wild fish from uh, aquaculture fish. So whether it be ISA, infectious salmon anemia, or any of the other host of things that they feed antibiotics to aquaculture fish to prevent, um, it it would make sense to not have any aquaculture in any location where there are wild fish. And that would be the ultimate solution. Then you would not have any of these issues. Uh, the, um, The problem with that is it's you got nice, clean, clear water in the North Atlantic. You've got big tides in uh, much of the Bay of Fundy. It's a perfect place for aquaculture. And then you also have uh, economies. You know, the economies in the Maritimes of Canada are uh, not great. So if a company comes in and says, I can get this many jobs, get this many jobs going, you know, the governments like that. And... The assurances come from aquaculture industries that they are going to be able to prevent escapees, um, that the sea lice problem has been contained, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, all of a sudden you start to uh, lose your wild salmon rivers within five to 10 years that are located within a 50 mile radius of the new aquaculture installation. And It's very difficult to prove that there's um, a one-to-one correspondence between aquaculture installation and the loss of a wild salmon river. Um, It's difficult to prove that, but if you look at it, you don't have to be a scientist to look at it. Wherever there's aquaculture installations, there are no wild fish of any consequence. And uh, it's beyond the smoking gun. It's... uh, um, I don't think there's anybody that doubts it. And uh, it would be right up there with climate change. You know, um, what percentage of the, uh, the population denies climate change is occurring? Um, that would be about the equivalent of, of the number of people that would deny that aquaculture is bad for wild salmon. And uh, so it's, uh, 
You know, the answer is move them on land. So you can, um, you can treat the water. You don't have to worry about sea lice and escaping because you're in a uh, contained environment. And, um, yeah, um, and, and that's the answer, but the startup costs are higher. Um, that said, the largest land-based aquaculture in the United States for Atlantic salmon is in Homestead, Florida. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a lot of uh, work um, uh, with Atlantic Salmon Five Sapphire and those guys. Um, I w- I'm a chef. I'm a trained chef, by the way, and uh, mm-hmm. so I've been lobbying for this for a long time. In a, in the winter issue uh, last winter, we um, or I think it's in the spring issue, we did a whole piece on. Uh, Civilizations founding fish Atlantic salmon, the lust for the the meat, um, and uh, we did a whole feature with Atlantic Samfire. They're from Norway. They mm-hmm. the startup costs are amazing. Um, it's finding those right aquifers that make sense uh, to get the groundwater because it's all about groundwater. But um, Atlantic Sapphire really is one of the few that are really coming on board with this whole thing. And that whole thing outside of Miami, Homestead, Florida. Uh, I, I spent an interview. Actually, I have an interview with with uh, the president of Atlantic Sapphire. We talked about how they found this. And so you talk to people, you know, we're growing salmon down in Miami and people are looking at you like, what is going on here, man? And it's, uh, you know, but but the, the aquifers down there, uh, the beauty of it is they're, they're multi-level subterranean aquifers below there that if it's all about groundwater and finding really good, cold, fresh groundwater and those are, and, and a combination of brine with it to simulate ocean conditions at certain times. So the strata in that whole system down there is if you dig several hundred feet down, you get fresh water. If you dig several hundred feet more, you get briny water. If you get so-and-so more down, you get salt water. And they mm-hmm. have the ability to mix these subterranean aquifers directly into their metal tanks and it's like wow and they're like they were first amazed when their geologists went in there and did studies and and they're like my god this is god's gift to Atlantic salmon to Mm. take them away from indigenous populations grow them in a place that you have favorable weather that's not going to cause any big damages i mean it's hotter but they could control the environment you raise them in tanks and then you're using water that you could blend scientifically to make the exact right dope for these fish that just works perfectly yeah. and yeah they they have they have occasional problems where there's you know somebody forgets to turn the electricity on or somebody shut the electric like, oh, mm-hmm. thunderstorm knocked out this or you know but they're, they're raising these fish in a responsible environment. The fish taste delicious. I got a shipment of them. They were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they look good. Um, so I think that's the future. Um, and and now there's there's DNA replication of making rubber fish out of these. So they're actually cloning fish out of, out of the DNA right now. So it's even going one step further. They're test tube Atlantic salmon. They're not the real thing. Whereas uh, Atlantic Sapphire actually used Norway fish obtained from Norway. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, we could, that's a whole subject of a matter, but let's, let's mm-hmm. jump to another topic. Cause I think we t- covered that one really thoroughly. Um, 
you know, you know, we we talked a little bit about uh, you know Ori Figvusen and uh, you know all the things that he did, uh, you know, with the North Atlantic Salmon Fund, and now we have the Atlantic Salmon Trust and NASCO and Atlantic Salmon Federation, which is the one that we're most familiar with here in North America. What what was your you know uh, relationship with Atlantic Salmon Federation? Where do you see them going? You know, we talked a little bit about that earlier in the show, but give me a little give give us a little overview on on your whole perspective there. Um, I think um, all of those organizations do some good work. Um, I, as you said, I'm most familiar with the Atlantic Salmon Federation and uh, did quite a bit of work with them for a number of years. And um, I think they do some really good work. Um, I think um, one of the difficulties um, that they are presented with is appealing to a body of fishermen. Um, by that, I mean their membership or anybody that buys a, a license to go fishing for Atlantic salmon. And there's still a, a lot of people that like to kill Atlantic salmon. In other words, they want to, they want to be able to go fishing and uh, take one home for the pot, as they call it in Canada. And um, um, and that's a natural thing. You know, we, uh, a lot of people think, well, I'm just taking one. And uh, so how's that going to harm things? Well, if you look at a lot of the rivers um, that you can drive to, so if you can get in your car and go drive and fish the Atlantic salmon in that river, uh, there's a lot of pressure on those rivers due to this access. And so if you look at the number of people that go fishing on that river, and you call that a rod day, so one person goes fishing for one day on that river, that's a rod day. And the problem with a lot of these rivers is that the number of rod days that anglers are spending on that river outnumbers the number of fish by several multiples. Beautiful. So Beautiful just point. to do some math for you, let's say the, uh, the run size is 500 fish and you have 1,500 rod days. Now, not everybody's going to catch a fish every day, but let's say if you had 1,500 days of you know, fishermen fishing the river and everybody takes one, you know, has a 33% success ratio, that's 500 then um, all of a sudden, if they take one over the pot, there's no fish left. And, and I think that's the difficulty that people can't really wrap their head around um, in the sense that they don't have an understanding of how few fish are left. And just to go over those numbers again, in all of North America, uh, we're talking 456,000 grills in 2020. And we're talking 155,000 large salmon spread out between. Oh, amazing. You know, you really, it's amazing. That, that's such a beautiful point you're making. It's just yeah. And um, so back to the Atlantic Salmon Federation, that's some, that's some background. They are um, Canadian organization and there's a lot of Canadians that like to take one home for the pot. And so how, as a conservation organization, do you position yourself for the health of the conservation organization? 
And so how do you appeal both to people like me who feel that all salmon should be released because I just gave you the numbers, there's not a lot left. And we are at or near the lowest recorded number of wild Atlantic salmon fishery of wild Atlantic Atlantic salmon in recorded history. As far as we know, you know, certainly since we started keeping records, we're right close to the very bottom. And so I think one of the issues that I have with the conservation organizations such as ASF is they, they are not catch and release organizations. They support retention fisheries where it is legal to kill or retain a salmon. And they do this for a number of reasons, but one of the, one of the reasons is uh, a good chunk of their membership likes to kill fish. So, um, and another reason might be something like um, the aquaculture industry saying, hey, don't listen to those people because those conservationists want to take away your right to take one home for the pot. Right. And uh, so... But the problem becomes, um, and we'll get into the numbers of how many fish are actually killed in just a second here. The problem becomes um, if you're if you're an organization that is attempting to save salmon, but you simultaneously simultaneously advocate or say that it's okay to kill them. um, In my opinion, you're conflicted. You have a conflicted mandate, and uh, so. Number of problems with that. So just to give you an idea of what uh, 2020, um, the Canadian reported harvest total was for 104 tons of wild Atlantic salmon. So that's 104 tons of fish. That's approximately 31,500 small salmon and 10,200 large salmon. That's the number of wild salmon that were killed in Canada in 2020. Um, Dividing that up, the uh, First Nations fishery, uh, 58.7 tons of that total. So those are nets in mouths of rivers. The recreational fishery, so those are fly fishermen, because the only fly fishermen fish in Canada, 43.5 tons of Atlantic salmon killed on the end of a fly rod. Jesus Christ. And the Labrador has a small fishery still left. Um, I would call it a commercial fishery, but it's uh, called a Labrador resident fishing license. Uh, 1.7 tons were killed. Um, These are nets that go out from land and catch migrating salmon. So, you know, that's a lot of dead fish. And if you look at the, um, the Greenland fishery, so there's been a lot of uh, impetus to uh, buy out the Greenlanders uh, because the Greenlanders are fishing for multi-sea winter fish as they migrate down the west coast of Greenland. But the numbers on that for 2020 were 31.7 tons of wild Atlantic salmon. 
So um, the Greenlanders are kind of being made out to be the bad guys here in the sense that, you know, they're the only true commercial fishery. There's a small commercial fishery in St. Pierre in Miquelon, which is an island off of Newfoundland, which is part of France. Right. It's not part of Canada. They have a small commercial fishery for Atlantic salmon there. Uh, but the Greenland fishery, 31.7 tons taken in 2020. And uh, the Canadians, 104 tons. And so if you're a conservation organization, you know, to me, 30, you know, if you want to save salmon, um, you might want to go after the people that are killing 104 tons as opposed to the people that are killing 31 tons. Yeah. And that would be your own people. Yeah. And, uh, but it becomes very difficult to tell people who are funding you to stop killing fish. Yeah. Exactly. And if you wanted to put more Atlantic salmon rivers, put more Atlantic salmon in Atlantic salmon rivers in Canada, you would go after the 104 tons of Atlantic salmon that do not make it to the spawning beds. Yeah. Definitely. That would do more than absolutely anything that any of us could do to save wild Atlantic salmon would be to stop killing them. Yeah. And uh, um, to me, I mean, if you kill a fish and you take one home for the pot, it's yeah. not going to spawn from your freezer. <laughs> it's it's so beautiful that that is just uh, such a beautiful uh, analysis of the situation and it's such a I don't know I could use the word inbred but it's sort of a nationalistic thing where you know we have to get over these little these little uh, oh it's custom it's traditional oh yeah I need one for the potty you know this, this stuff's got to stop and I I fish Quebec a lot um, I, I I've I've dealt with the Zach I've I've fished. Uh, all the great rivers up there, you know, in the Gaspé and the York Dartmouth, St. Jean Pabos, you know, and Cascopedia systems and, and, and the Bonaventure, which, which there's a lot of one for the pot going on there. Um, and you know, the, the fight for live release. So now it's called live release. It's called catch and release here. They call it live release there. You, you've seen that, that urge now to, to be a little more forceful in their media, in their, in their focus and vision, live release. Yes, this fish was live release. But you somewhere, you got to make a stance and you exactly what you were saying. You have to say, we are a organization 100% behind live release. Uh, we are going to educate our natives in our area, regardless of tradition. Everybody always took one for the pot. Or, and, 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 you know, it was really interesting when I, was fishing with Austin uh, Austin Clark, who Monty mm -hmm. Burke did a nice piece on him uh, in uh, in Wall Street Journal, I think it was, or or no, I think it was Forbes magazine. Did Forbes, it. yeah. And I and I gave him some images that I had of Austin, and uh, but Austin one day uh, I fished with him a lot when uh, Bill Griner had Malby Lodge, and, mm -hmm. and he's died for different people since then. And um, but one day we watched uh, a Zach Zach Ecological Control. Uh, executive, a big executive, killed a 34-pound female Atlantic salmon uh, and was very proud of it. And Austin literally started crying practically and saying, man, if these people that are running the jailhouse 
<laughs> are, are, are killing are killing uh, the most beautiful fish on the planet. And uh, he says here he's just calling out the the taking genes in our population because when you kill a fish that takes your fly, you're killing out the the takers. And we know how many land salmon are not takers because we both had days on rivers when we thought we were going to lose our minds because we have yeah. you know 800 fish laying in a pool and not one of them wants to look at our flies. And then that one that does, we just knock it off kill it and then there's a genetic in there somewhere to be a little more aggressive and take a fly so it's kind of a tragedy in that whole system and i know bill had a really tough time promoting live release and they they pretty much wrote him out of canada for a lot of that because at that time back then uh maybe 15 years ago live release was yeah we do it but let's not talk about it you could still take one fly, <laughs> you know that whole thing so that that's a whole other issue and we're going to be having um uh, Bill Taylor on our podcast um, to talk a little bit about this. But um, I think at this point, we're going to take a little break. Uh, it's been an amazing lightning uh, podcast so far, talking to Topher Brown, who's who's such a, a insight, um, a fresh breath of air into this whole thing, because we all need to get serious with each other. And we need to get serious with the with the fish. And it's all about the fish and the passion with the fish. And we got it. We got to put our little uh, fiefdoms aside and and get a grip of reality. And that's what Topher is giving us today, a tremendous grip of reality uh, on what's happening. So we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about Topher and his love for Atlantic salmon. And we're going to get into spay guys and we're going to get into flies and we're going to get into technical things. But this is going to be a pretty long podcast series here. Um, and it's going to enlighten a lot of people uh, and, and please enjoy it. So uh, we'll be right back with the Hollow Waters podcast. can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing if you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rocks. Most of you think of Orvis as a trout rod and a real company. Uh, I've known them for many decades, 
And I had my first Orbis rod, graphite rod, when I was a teenager, using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to, to buy one. Um, they have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, for, for since the, the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but, but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity, and lately, um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and said, we're going to be taken seriously in this market, and they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander, and I took it to, uh, to Iceland, and I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimer's. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the, the grips, the, 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 whole, the whole package is just simply amazing. And um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market. And you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're gonna purchase the rods. They're, 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 they're very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis and ask for the Orvis mission. Give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone, or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in the Able product. Welcome back to Hollowed Waters Podcast. We're uh, Talking the passion for Atlantic salmon with Topher Brown, our special guest. And uh, we're going to take a question from one of our subscribers here shortly. But I just want to read a little quote uh, from one of my, uh, one of uh, the most loved guy that I love so much in this whole Atlantic salmon passion, Lee Wolf. And 
who, by the way, took one for the pot every once in a while. And uh, in his latter years, um, you know, I had the ability to talk to him since we have a place up in the Catskills and he was not too far from our place in the Neversink. And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things he had in remorse in his life was, um, you know, to kill a fish and he wished he never did it. And it's sort of like he went to the grave saying, man, I wish I never did that. And we all have our own little little darkness in our little lives that we have that we wish we, we did differently. But I just want to read a little quote that, um, that he said um, pertaining to something about, you know, our, our uh, Topher's thoughts about the survival of Atlantic salmon and, and what's going to happen. He, he said the essential differences between angling for an Atlantic salmon and for other game fish had their beginnings long before man ever thought of fishing. Over endless years in the slowly changing world, nature's patterns has fitted this salmon into its own special niche, bestowing upon it interesting traits and characteristics quite at variance with the conception of how a fish should live and act. And that probably sums up why we have such difficulties in catching them and and why they behave the way they do and why they keep us coming back for more and they enamor us so much. But uh uh, something we're going to talk about later when we get into actually spay fishing and flies. But uh, we're going to take a question uh, from one of our subscribers, listeners. This is from um, Ian in Pittsburgh, New York. And he basically says, I fish the Canadian Maritimes, Iceland, also live near the Great Lakes, so fish those tributaries in, in addition. Why do you think Atlantic salmon and steelhead have such a strong bond to the spay fly angler? Uh, almost like they are the same fish. Your thoughts, guys. Uh, Topher, I'm going to throw that at you since uh, you've uh, you fished the Great Lakes and the Salmon River mm-hmm. and fished all over the world. What's your whole concept on this thing? And uh, go for it. Um, I, I think he said it pretty well. Um, you know, they do captivate us. The question is, you know, why do they captivate us? And I, I think, you know, firstly, the fish is a beautiful fish to look at. And so when you hold it in your hands, um, you can't help but be struck by the markings on the side of the fish, the, uh, the proportion of the fish, whether that just happens to uh, coincide with what we've been told a fish should look like, I'm not really sure, but I know that when I look at them, whether it's a steelhead or an Atlantic salmon, I am pretty well speechless at the beauty of the fish. So the ability to to, um, cross paths with a fish for a few split seconds is is an amazing intersection of two living creatures, the angler and the fish. And I think that's another component of it. So if you catch a steelhead, um, I fished in British Columbia for steelhead. I fished um, on the West Coast, the Great Lakes for steelhead, and then all over for Atlantic salmon. And if you take a, a migratory fish, when you hold it in your hands, if you caught it, it three months ago, that fish might have been a thousand miles away. Right. And so where were you three months ago? And what were you doing? Well, you were probably in your car on your way to work or you were, you know, going to a restaurant. 
And meanwhile, three months ago, that fish was doing its thing. It was going to its own restaurant in the smorgasbord of the North Atlantic or the Pacific. And then you migrated to this spot called pool in a river and your lives came together. It took your fly and now you are holding this fish in your hand. And, you you know, that's an amazing story. Uh, what are the odds of that happening? Um, given all the things that salmon have to go through to get to that size or steelhead has to go through, that's an amazing story. So not only is the fish... I think beautiful to look at, but the uh, the entire scenario is unlikely, and there's so many obstacles. Um, you know, they could close the border to Canada; you wouldn't be able to go fish. And so, um, I think that's a big component of it as well. And, and I think the third component is they're not easy to catch, and um, and so something increases in value. I think the more difficult it is to procure. And if we went out there and caught salmon every third cast, I'm guessing that it wouldn't be quite as much of a celebration when we caught them on that third cast. It'd be kind of like going to the trout pond. You know, if you're a three-year-old kid on a stock trout pond, you can even see the three-year-old kids start to get it gets a little old when they catch them on every cast. So um, I think those three things pretty well sum it up for me. And uh, um, as to why they, uh, as Matt said earlier, they can either um, um, really change your life or they can kind of ruin your life in the sense that um, uh, my, a good, my, my great friend, Mike Crosby, um, who passed away in, 2021, he, uh, he told his wife, Anne, when they got married, he said, um, don't make me choose between you and Atlantic salmon. And, uh, he said, I'm going to go fishing, you know, and I'm going to go fishing for eight, 12 weeks a year, whether you like it or not. It's just the way it is. You know, if, if you're not okay with that, you know, tell me now. And uh, she was okay with that. And they had a very happy marriage. And, uh, but I think she knew deep down that uh, she wasn't going to change it. And uh, so in, you know, in that respect, um, a lot of us don't really have a choice. You know, we're, we're going to go do this. It has become a really important part of our lives. And uh, so it's part of our identity. And, and I really uh, personally uh, recognized that during COVID and because the border was closed, you know, I basically had to go pound sand for two years and, uh, um, and, you know, I did some other fishing and I had, you know, I had some great trips to the, uh, the great lakes, really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time working on spacecast. So, you know, we turned it into a positive, but I did realize that um, a lot of my identity is wrapped up in a fish. And, uh, and if I can't fish for that fish, I'm going to have to get myself a new identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, this you, you summed it up so beautifully, Topher. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm going to answer um, uh, Ian's question a little bit, and I'm going to point to the 
you know, if you want to know about a person, uh, you, uh, you, you always ask about their upbringing and, um, you know, where they came from, what kind of stock they came from, what their parents were like, where were they brought up, um, you know, who were their mentors? And I look at Atlantic Salmon and Steelhead as I look at their ecosystem and their foundation of what they were and, um, you know, what they were meant to be and how they, how they acquire all their characteristics. And if you look at Atlantic Salmon and Steelhead, and the tremendous bond they have with the river and, and the fact that they spend up to, you know, two, three years in the river system as young rainbow trout or as small brown trout. That's what I call a little Atlantic salmon smolt. Uh, that's why I wrote the Nexus book, because the, the bond between them were so strong that mm. they're, they're little trout pecking around for, for you know, for, for mayflies, stoneflies, diptera when they're, when they're small, uh, crustaceans. Um, they start getting into vertebrates when they get a little about six, seven inches and they'll start nipping at eight inch long streamers. Um, these guys are in the bond of natal imprinting of their environments. And that's what they, that's who they are, what they are. And then they go to the ocean and they get a whole new imprinting schema on prey in the ocean systems, but their ability to take that fly um, and, and, take it in, in small versions like size 16 tubes to, to large roadkill, uh, make them so special. And that's why their thoughts, the bond is so simple that they like that fly moving away from them. You know, that spay fly swung at them at that wet fly speed, which we're going to talk about, but that it's, they're a product of their environment and Pacific salmon don't have that. Pacific salmon smoke very early, like four or five inches, like on our river systems here where we have wild king salmon. They don't have the chance to build up that bond in their natal environments. So the natal environments are what fly fishermen try to present. And that's why they're such good takers yeah. of the fly. And that's why they have such a strong bond. And, and, and Topher summed it up. They're absolutely beautiful. So I think we answered that question. And we're going to go to to Topher, um, your love for Atlantic salmon. Uh, I mean, when did you, when did you get the calling? You know, when did you become a, a, Je a Jedi and a Jesuit? And you said, I'm going to devote my life to these fish. You know, when did it start? Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, did you come from an angling family? Uh, any boyhood tales that led you on to this, uh, and then, you know, we're going to talk about your book, but, uh, you know, give us the, the, the foundation. Like I just talked about Steelhead and Atlantic Salmon's birth in the stream and their natal imprinting. What's your natal imprinting all about, brother? Uh, I grew up um, outside of Boston um, in a, uh, a very rural area. And so we had, I had access to about 300 acres of land. I grew up 20 miles from Boston, but I had a trap line when I was a kid for muskrats. And uh, I had pickerel fishing and a couple of pumps right out in front of my house. And I don't know where the, um, the hunting and fishing thing came from because my dad does, did, you know, does and did neither. And nobody in my family hunts or fishes um, other than my grandfather. So my dad's dad, he, uh, he was a big hunter and a fisherman, but I never got to do it with him. And uh, so I've always been of the opinion that uh, it's a gene. Um, 
you need a certain amount of access to it for sure. You know, somebody's got to be able to drive a kid or put a rod in his hands, drive a kid to a pond. But, you know, there are plenty of instances of kids that get taken and have access to it that never, never really get into it. And then there's other kids like me, you just point them, give them a whiff of it, and it's their passion for life. So what's the difference? To me, it's, uh, I think it's a gene. I think there's something, uh, there's a, um, a predatory gene, if you will, that is passed on. And I got it from my grandfather. And he and I, we all like, we both like the same, same books. I've got the book that was on his bedside table the night he died. And I still read that book. And he put it there because he knew he was dying and it gave him comfort to read it. And so uh, that's where I grew up. I had, a, I had good access to the outdoors, but I was a big spin fisherman up until about the age of 15. And I still enjoy spin fishing. And uh, so I'm not a total fly fishing snob. And I do, I have done a fair amount of, of spay casting instruction. And my best students by far are spin fishermen. Yeah. Yeah. Not even, not even close. Yeah, yeah. Not even close. You give me a, you give me somebody that's been fly fishing for trout with a nine foot five weight for 50 years. I will show you somebody who is very difficult to teach spay casting to. But if you give me somebody who's been spin fishing for striped bass with a 12 foot rod off of Montauk, New York, I can turn him into a spay fisherman in probably under three hours. <laughs> and uh, because it's all the same. You know, your your two hands, you know, it's two hands versus one hands. Or lacrosse players, dude. Lacrosse I, players. I, I do. I started space schools the last couple of years. And you give me a hockey player or a lacrosse player. Totally. And that bottom yeah. hand, it's just freaking amazing, man. How, how it just, is. And, and, you know, what's really so great, um, what you said, it's about there's a there's a there's a DNA. There's something. It's it's like a prodigy. It's almost like a prodigy. So. You know, I played soccer all my life and soccer is a big part of my life. And you get 20, you know, I coach soccer. I coach so many teams and you get 30 kids out there. And then all of a sudden your eye zooms in on one kid, you know, or, yeah. or one boy or girl. And you're like, where the hell? And then you talk about, you know, the DNA of fishing, which is so cool because you, I, I take so many guiding for 27 years and, and taking so many father and son duos and mother and daughter duos and mother and son duos. You know, there's this one, there's this one kid that's just so damn good. And you're like, what, you know, you ask the mother, why, why, how did he get so good? Where did it come from? And she goes, I have no idea. There's nobody in this damn family that fishes. Nobody likes fishing. I hate fishing. My husband hates fishing. Why yeah. does this kid love to fish? And it's like a calling. It's like you got that gene that predispositions you to yeah. be a, a, a fanatic. And I got it. You got it. There's so many great people that got it. And, mm -hmm. and you summed it right up. It, it, it makes no sense. But uh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that because it was just. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's my best explanation. And uh, um, I, I always think it skips a generation. So, you know, I always look to. Um, you know, if, if the if I've got a kid that really loves fishing, um, I always look to uh, their grandparents um, or somebody deep in their in their 
their past because I'm looking for that genetic link. Cause I, I really firmly believe it's, uh, you know, it's some part of the brain that is absolutely captivated when they see a wild creature and they want to either, it's not a kill thing. They want to touch it and possess it. And, um, the, uh, the great writer, Tom McGuane in Montana said, um, he said, you know, I just like to hold them. I just like to look at them. And I fish, not to kill them, not to eat them. I fish, I'm paraphrasing now, I fish to look at them. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I asked him once, I said, you know, what was the first place where you became a fisherman? And he said he was with his grandfather looking into a stream and there was a small brook trout holding in the stream. This was in Massachusetts of all places. And he, uh, he said, I started to quiver and shake with excitement, just looking at the fish. And, you know, this is our, um, one of the greatest writers in the country. And certainly I think the greatest writer in, in, in essay form on fly fishing, uh, that, that we produced in this country. So in other words, a literate, a highly literate person, and all he can say is I started to shake when I saw them for the first time. Yeah. And, and I think that's the way a lot of us feel. And, uh, and that's the way I feel when I hold a, a, a salmon that I'm about to release, you know, yeah. I look into their eyes and I want to say, I say, I say to myself, what have you seen? Yeah. yeah. And because uh, we now know these fish, they dive down to 1500 feet in search for food. Yeah. And uh, they don't just sit there six feet below the top of the water in the ocean. They are, they are everywhere. Yeah. And, but back to your question, how did I get started in salmon fishing? Uh, I was working at LL Bean in Maine and uh, um, I called up this gentleman in Canada because I'd heard about this enormous Atlantic salmon that he had landed. And uh, I was probably, what was I, probably 26, something like that, 26, 27, right in there. Done a lot of trout fishing, never been Atlantic salmon fishing. And his name was Mike Crosby. And he had um, landed a 61-pound Atlantic salmon on a dry fly oh on the rest of the river. What river? Rescuge. Rescuge, okay. Yeah. Yep. And um, played it for over an hour, landed it, and they measured it and uh, took about a roll of film. Those were the film days. And then released it. And um, so I called him up and he, uh, he was just opening a fly shop in Halifax, Canada. And I said, have you ever been to the Marguerite River? And he said, no, I've never been to the Marbury River. He said, I normally fish, uh, you know, southwest Nova Scotia and, you know, mostly La Have, and uh, which was a really good river in those days. And I said, well, I'm going up. You know, I work at L.L. Bean. Um, I want to come see your new fly shop. And why don't we go down to the Marbury River? So we did. And we went down there with a lobster fisherman from uh, the South Shore named Levy. We rented a cabin and we all went fishing the Barbary River for the first time. We all got fish. And uh, I wandered down to a pool just below Red Bank on the Barbary River, made about 
six casts and hooked a fish and lost it. And then a couple of days later, I landed my first fish and, uh, and that was it. You know, the, there's the old, um, saw about the fish hooking you. Well, it's true. Um, you hook the fish, but the fish hooks you too. And, uh, um, you know, and it's a shot of adrenaline, morphine, um, thyroxine, you know, whatever eating you want to throw at it, but you want to do it again. And, uh, if you, uh, don't have an addictive personality, you might be less susceptible to being hooked by the fish. And, uh, uh, because it's, uh, it's a shot of something and you want that shot of something again, just like a heroin addict wants to, you know, nod out again after a, an injection of heroin. So, um, the, tug is the drug baby, you know, it's yeah. The tug is the drug. And, um, so, um, yeah, it was, that was all she wrote after that. And, you know, I think, and this goes back to an earlier point that you made. I think there are two things that are really going with the fascination for steelhead and for salmon. And if you look back in human history, say a hundred thousand years, let's, let's go back to Africa. Let's go back a million years into Africa, early, early pre-hominids. They um, came out of the trees, went into the grasslands and there were rivers running through the grasslands and they killed fish, made a living um, on rivers running through grasslands. I would submit, I cannot prove it, that that is a scale of man's relationship to nature that we are very comfortable with based on millennia of evolution. That a river running through a mix of forest and open land is very comfortable to the human species. In other words, if you put me out in a boat in the middle of the Atlantic and tell me to go fishing, um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, but you, you give me a river running through a hardwoods, mix of hardwoods and, uh, and evergreens, and it has a bend in the river, I can relate to that. And I think I can relate to that because, you know, my ancestors came from Northern Europe. There's a lot, a lot of that in Northern Europe. And, um, the, uh, the other thing that I think that we relate to is the fact that, you know, so we, we like fishing in fresh water where, where the boundaries of the water are defined within visual sight. The other thing that I think is magical about steelhead and salmon is you could ask the question, are they a freshwater critter or are they a saltwater critter? Well, the answer is they're both. You know, they live three years in freshwater and then they head out to the sea for anywhere from one to four or five years. But I would submit that if you catch a fish and it's got sea lice on it, um, sea lice being a parasite that drop off after 72 hours in freshwater. So that means your fish was in the ocean within the last 72 hours. I would submit that that fish is a saltwater critter. 
And uh, it's got all the energy, the marine energy of having fed for several years in the ocean, but it's now in a river. And so one of the beauties of uh, salmon fishing for me is you have the best of both freshwater and saltwater all combined into one fish in one place. And you've got a riverine environment with a scale that we are very comfortable with over many generations of humans fishing. And you've got a fish with all the power of a saltwater fish, uh, which is many times more powerful than most freshwater fish. You got it all. Yeah. You know, you got freshwater, you got saltwater, you got a beautiful environment, and you've got a beautiful fish that fights as well as anything out there. And I think that's a big part of what happens when the fish hooks you. Yeah, it, it's, it's truly, uh, it's truly encompassing. And, uh, and uh, on my, on my end, my passion came, um, I, I wrote a whole chapter for my Atlantic salmon brown trout nexus book uh, called the big pool in the Treehouse." But I was a, uh, Living in Poland as a boy and a nine-year-old boy filled with dreams. And we had a river that ran through our farm in northern Poland near Gdansk called the Vyepsha River. And it had sea-run browns that came in. And it still had a reminiscing population, a post-war population of Atlantics. Granted, they were so limited. And the Vyepsha was the last river that still retained Atlantic salmon before they pretty much went extinct. And now they're doing a major recovery program. But my grandfather was a game warden and he had, he had bamboo rods. He had a bamboo spay rod at uh, Hardy and he had a bamboo um, trout rod and uh, he had Czechoslovakian and German shotgun. So he had the best of the best German short ears, but he, he, he got me on to, to an Atlantic salmon when I was, geez, nine years old on a green Highlander in a pool that, in, that ran through the farm right in back of the barn and um, he, he held this 10 pound rod, a, a 15 foot, 11 weight bamboo rod weighed as much as a Volkswagen. I mean, this thing was so heavy and his two hands and my two hands, we swung it through the pool. I begged him to take me, he said, wait for the rain to come. We need the rain. And he, he, you know, I was like this little crazed kid that, uh, I couldn't take it anymore. And we hooked an Atlantic salmon and I held onto the line and it broke off. And I watched that salmon the rest of the summer swim around that pool with that big green Highlander stuck in its mouth like a cigar. <laughs> and I was literally dreaming about that fish every single night. And my mother was so um, uh, like confused and how could I be so enamored with a fish? And, and it was like a calling. So it's mm. exactly the same thing that, you know, you, you looked in its eyes and I still, to this day, I see that fish in my dreams. I see it, you know, when I'm catching Atlantic salmon now and I, I always go back to that ground zero fish. And uh, that's what makes it that addictive personality. You summed it up. It's, it's, it's yeah. an addictive thing. And once you get yeah. bit by it, you can't stop it. So let's go to, um, let's go to Atlantic salmon magic. Um, your book is, is truly amazing. It's a Bible. It's so well done. Uh, your spiritual bond comes out through the, throughout throughout the entire book. Uh, it's your pursuit, uh, your countless wet fly swings, the thousand casts, your karma, your zen. Um, 
it's tough to describe uh, when you read your book because it just comes out all over the place. Um, talk about like how long it took you to make um, that thing and, and, and what, you know, what drove you to it um, to, to write a book like that and who inspired you, who did somebody give you the idea or you had the idea? Did you approach, give me the whole background on Atlantic Samuel. Sure. It's really amazing. Um, I think the two, uh, there were two books that inspired me. Um, one was Hugh Falkus's book, which was called Salmon Fishing, which is called Salmon Fishing. And that's, We're gonna that, that was the Bible, I think, you know, and in many respects still is the Bible for Atlantic salmon fishing. You know, mine is um, an update on that with uh, um, a different take on it. Uh, a lot of it informed by science that's been done since uh, Hugh Falkus died. So, you know, that's a natural progression. That's just the way things are. The other book that um, influenced me, which I, I thought and still think was one of the great books that's ever been written on anadromous fishing was Trey Combs's book um, on steelhead. And, uh, and, you know, that is, that and Deck Hoven's book are the two great books on, uh, on West coast steelhead fishing. And, but what I, what I loved about uh, Trey Combs's book was the interplay between interviews, uh, great photography, fly photos. Um, so I wanted to do something like that for Atlantic Sam. And, um, so I approached, uh, Tom Perro with the idea and Deck Hogan is a friend of mine. So I knew Deck had, um, had, you know, done his book, A Passion for Steelhead. And so I approached Tom with the idea for that. And, uh, told him that, you know, we should do a book like that, that was, that used uh, the approach that, um, that Trey had used for his book. And he was really open to that. Um, He knew that I had a lot of experience. Um, So it wasn't uh, coming from a place that uh, was completely theoretical, that it was based on actual experience. And um, and I sent him some, uh, some chapters and away we went. And, um, and one of the interesting things that happened, uh, during that time period was Amazon. Amazon, you know, obviously around before that, but they, um, Amazon really got started in the book business. Um, I think the story goes, Jeff Bezos, he was, making millions of dollars in New York city. And he informed his bosses that he was going to leave the business and go start a, uh, he was going to sell books from his garage and they thought he was crazy. And, uh, um, and he thought he had a better way. This is Bezos to a uh, better way to build a mousetrap, better way to sell books. And, he did and he didn't. Um, the, um, you know, he obviously thought bricks and mortar were over and, um, um, and he did everything with his model to make it difficult for bricks and mortar. Um, but the point being that um, you could download a book 
and it would be much cheaper than buying a paper copy and every, everybody would win. The problem with that model was that the, uh, the people that lost were the people that write the books, the authors. And because if the, if the wholesale price goes down or the retail price goes down, then uh, the author gets a chunk out of a lower price and he makes less money. Right. And um, so one of the strategies to, um, and so does the publisher for that matter, one of the strategies to a book like Atlantic Salmon Magic was how do you, how do you keep it out of Amazon's hands so they can't do that to you? Yeah. And um, one of the ways you do that is, um, is to have different focuses for the book. So if you put a lot of pictures, pictures in there that are really, you know, we had Paul Nicklin, who works for Nash, National Geographic. He was the underwater guy. And we had Matt Harris, um, who's a commercial pro out of England. Um, and Matt was the, the principal photographer for the book. And nobody really wants to uh, have that on an iPad, particularly. Yeah. And, uh, and even getting it onto an iPad is difficult. So, or, or getting it onto a Kindle is difficult. And so by, you know, by keeping the distribution limited to the publisher, you can keep it um, out of Amazon's hands. You can preserve your margins. And then if you essentially do a coffee table book, um, then nobody really, you know, they want it on their coffee table. They don't want it on an iPad. Now, some people may think they want it on an iPad, but, um, you know, if you go back in time and look at, what books were, you know, 500 years ago, books were a sign of wealth and learning. So if you had a library, you were a well-to-do person. And I would submit that that hasn't changed that much, or maybe we're going to go back to that in some form. In other words, let's say you've got a library of 5,000 titles and you get it all on an Apple laptop. What's more impressive? You invite a bunch of people over, and you open up your laptop and you go, hey, check out the five time, 5,000 titles I've downloaded onto my, uh, onto my laptop. Yeah. Or compare that to a bunch of bookshelves with 5,000 books in it, and most of which you've read. Um, which one do you want in your study? And, and I think that's what we were trying to go after with a book like this. You know, it's uh, there's... There are other pleasures besides downloading something. And um, I had one person buy this book and get back to me with a comment. Um, and she said, I bought your book. I really, really enjoy it. And I just wanted to let you know that I don't fish at all. And I just bought your book because of the photography, the underwater photography. And then I thought, you know, the science that you had about the fish in the back was super interesting. And, um, and to me, that was a big compliment. And um, what she was saying was, uh, you know, there, there was something in it for me, even though I don't fish. And, uh, and that's a win. And so 
All of that went into it. Um, there are very few parts of publishing that are doing really, really well right now, but coffee table books are actually doing quite well. And the big Italian coffee table books and, you know, publishing houses like Rizzoli, they're doing quite well. And uh, because people don't want them digitized and they can also sell directly to their customers. So if it's a hundred dollar book, people will go to the Rizzoli um, website and order it directly from the publisher. Exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's uh, that's a way around the devaluation of the book that Amazon has really created. Yeah. And well, what do you uh, what do you see um, media going these days? Uh, you know, we're so you know a lot of times when you talk Atlantic Salmon, some you know um, editors I sometimes project ideas onto they uh, um, they basically say, ah, oh, we don't want to talk Atlantic Salmon. You know, they're dying fish. They're they're Right. Not going anywhere, you know. I, I want something. So you know, today's media and you and I've written for a lot of major publications, and I I I was an editor at so many different publications. I even lost track. Um, and you talk about our friend Tom Perro. Tom Perro had a brilliant idea that that Wild Steel Atlantic Salmon magazine is still my favorite magazines. I have yeah, them. I too. I have them on on like why the hell and and what I'm trying to do with Hollowed Waters is bring back some of that and bring back what magazines were and uh, keep the passion, the integrity, the beauty, the artistry, the history, the ecology. And, and Tom did a great job with Wild Steel. And I, I did a great, I love the article I did with Tom and uh, about Great Lakes Atlantic Salmon back in 1995. Geez, that was 20, <laughs> 28 years ago. Uh, but he was such a vibrant guy. He was, he was quite the character Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, you know, he had vision and it was so great to see vision with somebody. And and that vision today is really lacking. And and it's one of the reasons why I started Hollow Waters Journal. And, um, you know, today it's just put a beadhead nymph on and go to this creek and throw it in there and catch your fish and post the crap on social media. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I have had this long discussion to dumb it down and dilute it. And I think editors and Publishers today think that people that fly fish are just stupid morons that need to be told how to put the damn nymph on and go, you know, snag the fish somewhere. And it and it's getting out of control. And, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm, it, you know, there's a few publications. The one you did a beautiful interview with Chasing Silver, which was really, really well done. And there's a couple out there. But what? How do you see media going? Where? 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 You know, we're such. A, we're in the dark ages of media yeah. right now. It's it's kind of depressing and yeah, we're teaching people, we're teaching people to think like this and you dumb it down even more with Instagram and Facebook and all that other stuff. Uh, it gets kind of creepy uh, and it gets kind of scary. And uh, give me, give me your perspective on this. Mm. Um, I think, um, you know, I think what we have is more media now of a lower quality and you know, we had uh, we had some pretty high quality publications 30, 30 years ago. Yep. And I was at a friend's house and he had some old copies of Fly Fisherman magazine next to the toilet. Oh, my God. And Fly Fisherman magazine, Fly Fisherman magazine in the 1970s was one hundred and fifty pages. Yeah. Now it's perhaps a third of that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's less. 
intelligent content, shall we say, but there's still a lot of content out there. And I think the, I think that is good for getting people into the sport. So Instagram is probably getting more people into fly fishing than any other entity right now. And people, they want to, they want to have the kind of fun that they see people having fun with a fly rod in their hands on Instagram. And they say, I, I want to do that too. And I think that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the, um, the difficulty becomes when um, you say, well, this is the easiest way to catch fish and, you know, get out there and enjoy it. The difficulty comes when it's too easy. Yeah. And I think anybody um, who likes to challenge themselves is always looking to make it more difficult, not necessarily easier. So in other words, if you were uh, a trout fisherman, um, you could go to the stock trout pond and pay your $15 and catch a fish every other cast. And, but you're going to outgrow that. You're going to go, you know, this really isn't a challenge anymore. Um, I'm going to go somewhere where the fish are more selective and see if I can be successful there. And if that gets too easy, you'll start going to the South Holston or the West Branch of the Delaware and cut your teeth there. So my point is we're looking, people who are, are fishermen are looking to challenge themselves. You know, it's, it's very similar to like tennis. Um, you know, you don't say, all right, tennis is hard. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over that crank on the net and I'm going to lower the net two feet. <laughs> Because my serve just keeps going into this net and it really pisses me off. Well, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you keep the net high yeah. because tennis is played and it's difficult and we like it difficult because it challenges us. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, same with golf. You know, I keep going in these little pits. They call them sand traps. My golf course, I'm getting rid of those, man. <laughs> and what's more is I'm going to funnel. The whole course is going to be like a funnel. So all I got to do is just get it within 50 feet of the hole. And it just, you know, eventually ends up in the hole. That's what I want. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so, it's so true. And, um, you know, I think what brought us to the dance and so many other people that have the passion is the journey. And, and we're trying to eliminate the journey. We're trying to, here it is, it's served up on a platter for you. Take it, run with it, and we don't expect you to 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 reinvent it. We just want you to stick by the mold. And I think what made you know great anglers that we you know when I read Fly Fisherman back in the seventies, which I have every volume ever published, and I'm still stuck in the seventies and eighties and early nineties. <laughs> my mentors, you know, like Carl Richards, who I fish with, and yeah. Vince Marinero, who I had the pleasure of fishing on Mondays on the Latorte, and I'm sorry, I'm a romantic, you're a romantic, um, but we, we now serve things up on a platter to people and that's all you get and that's all you need. And we don't allow them to have the journey and the journey is what makes you, what makes the sport, what makes everything about this art form is the journey and they will only have what was served on that platter unless we challenge them to take it to the next level. And the really great people in this sport take it to the next level and, and, and reinvent it and, and, 
and always pay tribute to the people that started it because nothing is new. It's always, it's all been there. We're just, we're just making variants on all this, like COVID's making its variants. And we need to challenge that people to think into that process. And I think that's where we fail on so many areas is we're not challenging them to think journey, passion, and make it better. So that that's the way I think of it. That's what I'm trying to do with Hollow Waters Journal. But uh, enough of that. Let's talk. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about about uh, your book, and we're going to talk about destinations. Uh, we're going to take a break, um, but we're we're talking the passion for Atlantic salmon, and our our podcast is probably going to be a two part series because uh, we're going to go heavily into spay and we're going to go heavily into the modern flies, which. Um, it's going to be all part of this wonderful journey. So we're going to take a break right now and stay with us. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast with Topher Brown and the passion for Atlantic salmon. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything, and, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline, Tell Marcos I said hi, and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. Hooks and lines have been around since Cro-Magnum Man and Neanderthal Man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, Hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion, they're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear uh, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue green aqua looking waters of certain salmon rivers. 
that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for, for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, when that fish takes your fly, you're going to be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I could say about them. Um, in the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have, um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and the different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications, uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller, Um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive further into the passion for Atlantic salmon. Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, Our accolade-winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns, and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini-bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. Welcome back to Hollowed Waters Podcast. Uh, We're talking with Topher Brown on the Passion for Atlantic Salmon. And uh, it's been a really engaging uh, discussion so far. I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are um, talking about it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about um, you know, in, in my Nexus book, I talk about civilizations founding fish uh, along with brown trout. So, you know, I, I, I got a little romantic in, in my thought processes, uh, but, you know, I, I said, you know, when Cro-Magnum man and Neanderthal man came out of their caves and uh, like in Abouille de Poisson at Le Chaux and with the cave drawings of, the, of of a salmo, it looked like an Atlantic salmon, it looked like a sea run brown trout, um, you know, and, or could have been a, yeah, could have been a sea run brown trout. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but so poor man's Atlantic salmon are brown trout. And that's <laughs> sort of the gist that I put together when I did my Nexus book and, and, you know, um, 
brown trout act like Atlantic salmon. If you look, it catches small little uh, Atlantic salmon in a the river. They look like brown trout when they come back and, and form into their adulthood and their spawning phases. They look like brown trout. Um, and Topher, I, I want to know, you know, your um, take on brown trout. Um, and uh, when it comes to you, you guided out in Montana. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, they take, they're so preoccupied with the surface when we get into the space series on the part two, we're going to talk about the dry fly and, and how Atlantic salmon takes the dry fly and all the cool things like that. But so what is your, what is your uh, involvement with Samuel Truda? How do you perceive them? Um, you know, give us a little background on, on your whole guiding thing and, and, and that whole, that whole gig. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, they're, um, they, as you, as you say, they're called Salmo Truta, you know, and that's their binomial name, you know, Linnaean name, if you will, Carl Linnaeus. The uh, Atlantic salmon is Salmo Salar. And so they're both Salmos, and which means they're both from the same ichthyological branch of the tree, if you will. And so they're very closely related. And I don't know enough about the, uh, you know, the current thinking as to uh, which came first, but I would probably guess that the brown trout came first and that the Atlantic salmon came second. And so um, it's interesting to me, you know, when the, uh, the first uh, Europeans came to New England, they saw a brook trout in a in the streams and so they named them after trout but they're they're really not trout they're char and um so you know we call them brook trout and but they're char and we call them brown trout but they're really salmon and so there's a lot of confusion about, um, you know, what these fish really are. And so I've always thought that, um, that brown trout, if you were a good brown trout fisherman, that you are all set to deal with an extremely moody fish like the Atlantic salmon. You will be well-trained um, as a salmon fisherman and, and going the other way around too. And, I did a lot of fishing um, out west. I lived in Montana for a period of time. I lived in Wyoming for several summers, and I lived in Utah for two and a half years. And I worked uh, in fly shops out there. I worked in Western Rivers in Salt Lake City and Yellowstone Angler in Livingston, Montana. And, uh, and I always migrated to the brown trout fisheries out there if I could find them and because uh, I don't know probably because I've done a lot of salmon fishing and uh, so I do know that you know some of the younger fishermen from the west branch of the Delaware who are which is a really a a brown trout fishery uh, rainbows in there for sure but uh, lots of brown trout and so I do know that the guys that are really good hunters of brown trout on the West Branch when they go particularly to fish low water Atlantic salmon in Canada, 
they do really well. Yeah, exactly. Because they can really get into the head of the fish and they have in their bag of tricks so many different ways to fish and to present flies. They end up being very creative, low water Atlantic salmon fishing. And, and that is, you know, I, I'm, I don't particularly like low water, you know, low water to me is, uh, it's interesting, but um, it's uh, what I like about um, early season fishing and high water is, uh, is reading the water to find out where the fish are going to be and then having the casting chops to hit it with your fly. In low water, there is absolutely no doubt where the fish are because you can see them. And then it becomes, well, you know, how are you going to hook them? Um, And it's a very different game. And I would submit that low water Atlantic salmon fishing is closer to what most people do when trout fishing for when fishing for brown trout than what most Atlantic salmon fishermen think of as classic Atlantic salmon fishing, which is the fish are just coming in, the water's high, how do you get them? And uh, almost like two different sports. And so I think the two are very closely linked. Um, I've also fished for, uh, I've spent six weeks down in Tierra del Fuego fishing for Sea Run Browns down there. And it's, a magnificent fishery. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, I don't think the, uh, I never saw any classic pools like I, I've seen in Norway or Quebec. Right. And uh, the water was not as interesting to me, but the, you know, the idea of seeing a bunch of fresh fish splashing up the river and coming into the pool was every bit as exciting as anything that I've seen on the Atlantic salmon river. You can, you can literally see a pod moving up the river and um, you know, I can't imagine anything more exciting than that um, on any river. And here they come, you know, you'd best, you'd best be ready. And uh, so two very similar fish. um, And I think if you are, um, fairly fluid with both species in terms of your experience. I think it will make you a better fisherman um, in the spe- in, you know, for your species of choice. So I try to do all the brown trout fishing I possibly can because I believe strongly that it will inform my Atlantic salmon fishing. Oh, that's a, that's a, such a beautiful point. And if you look at, so, you know, uh, I, I spend so much time in the Catskills cause we have a place there. And if you look at, you know, the greats that, that were before us, uh, Lee Wolf and Hewitt on the Never Sink and Art Lee, um, you know, Art I fished with on the on the Bard Parker pool for Ice and Nikki is so much, and we talked so much about Atlantic salmon, but, you know, they wrote so many articles about brown trout fishing and the tailwaters, and, and you summed it up with the West Branch and, and Lee on the beaver kill, um, you know, a brown trout fisherman eventually becomes an Atlantic salmon fisherman. Yeah. And if you're if you're a good brown trout fisherman, you're going to go into the mind of an Atlantic salmon. That's basically what my Nexus book was about. They're Salmo. And, and you're absolutely right. A brown trout evolved close to 35, 40 million years ago. 
Atlantic salmon, 25 million years, and, and basically Atlantic salmon were a brown trout that eventually found salt water and, and adapted a whole life survival strategy that made sense with what they were doing. But if you look at both fish, they look alike, they talk alike, they walk alike, they look, they're the same beast. And if it's a duck, uh, if it walks like and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And that's what these guys do. And yeah. they love the surface and they, and, and, you know, I've caught big Atlantic salmon on the Dartmouth river in the summertime on a size 16 bluing olive, um, a wet fly that my guide looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing? And there was a betas hatch coming off on, on, uh, I forgot the pool on the Dartmouth, but, uh, it, it was like, you know, where, where are you pulling this crap out? This is, this is, these are the five <laughs> flies that we use for Atlantic salmon. And that's all we use. You know, this is all we do. This is all we make. And I'm like, no, th- I'm, this guy's looking at this fly over and over again. And I'm not telling you, I'm not lining this fish. He's looking at this fly. And so that's, I, you, you hit it right on the head when you said West Branch of the Delaware, because that is one of the most difficult fisheries. And, and a lot of the tailwaters are, and it's that carryover fish. And Hewitt brought them to the Never Sink Reservoir. And, you know, they tried to establish runs and they still have runs today of Atlantic salmon going up the upper, upper never sink. And, and so you're, you're dead on in that whole thing. Um, you know, you love Canada and Europe, just like I do. You've fished all over the place, Quebec, Iceland, Norway, Russia. Um, give me your perspective on these Salmo Meccas. It's people, it's mentality, it's fisheries, but mainly it's people and mentality. In, in a, just a quick perspective, um, if you can, because we're going to be closing up this this first episode uh, shortly. But um, if you had a couple things about in these spots, what 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 gave you the most focus and in, in your attention when you said, "Ah, that's different. This is different." What what, what is it? I uh, I think first and foremost, it's the fish, and there are different. Um, qualities to different fisheries and some of the rivers flow through meadows and they're placid there are cows in the background um and it's very peaceful um it's waltonian in experience and the fish are there and uh they're beautiful fish There are other rivers that have steep descent coming out of bigger mountains and the pools are deeper, the water is clearer and the fish kick your ass. Um, In order to migrate up a river like that through the heavy waters of the um, waterfalls and heavy rapids at the lower portion of the river, they have evolved to be stronger fish. And so when you hook those fish and they kick your ass, um, I think you get a bigger hit of adrenaline as an addicted fisherman. And you say, you know, boy, I want to do that again, but I'd really like to do it for a fish that um, really kicks my ass so that the odds are it's an even a level playing field. I want, I want to get my ass kicked at least half the time here. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's where I'm at with, with uh, the fisheries that I go back to over and over and over again. And I, you know, I've had fish take a double hook, a loop, double hook and straighten it out. Yeah. 
and I am fishing 25 pound tipping. And, <laughs> you know, and they're going under bridges and I'm like, all right, this is it. You know, I'm not swimming under the bridge. So this is going to be a tug of war. I'm going to lock it off. And either the fish is going to break me off or, you know, my hooks are going to straighten. It's going to be one of the two. That's what I'm looking for. So the fishery, the fisheries that I end up going back to have fish like that. And, uh, and those tend to be June fish in Quebec. Yeah. And uh, the other place where you can really get that done is Norway. And uh, the last time I was in Norway was on the Risa which is just below the Alta, way up northern Norway. And that was about four years ago. And I was fishing with an older gentleman, and uh, he, uh, he got spooled by this big fish, probably 35, 40 pounds. We never saw it. And he was fishing a hatched tarpon reel, and he had 400 yards of gel spun. And it took the whole thing out and broke him off, 20-pound test at the Arbor Knot. Oh, my God. And uh, needless to say, that guy will be back next year, you know, with 500 yards of gel spun. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, there's, we could, we're going to go into this a long in depth um, in the next series. So this is the, uh, we're finishing up part one here on the passion for Lang salmon. We're going to come back in part two. I hope you guys are really enjoying the conversation as much as we are. Um, we're getting into into some depth here that I think um, uh, so many people have, have expressed interest in, and uh, uh, and we're and it's something to really think about. We're trying to take that passion and journey that we're doing with Hollowed Waters and and having great um, great guests like Topher Brown here today. But we're going to come back and do Spay, and we're going to get heavily into that. Uh, that's uh, there's so much to talk about there and the evolution of where it's gone, where it started, how we dumbed it down, how we're going back to traditionalism. There's so many cool things there. And then talk about the flies. So we have two more hours to come. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for uh, being part of this whole thing. And uh, Topher, we're going to be back uh, with you on part two. And uh, with that, please be safe, everyone. Take care. Take care of each other and uh, two great uh, days coming on the river. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.